Emerging Voices Fellowship is a literary mentorship that provides new writers the tools to launch a professional writing career. Emerging Voices is the most amazing program that allows the writers to develop. It's the opportunity to have my work in the world, to get to the truth of my writing, to know that what I'm writing matters. Okay, I'm going to start with reading the intro, and then I can cut it however, okay. but... A few times I've done this, I forgot to read the intro, and we were talking for like 20 minutes, and I was like, oh yeah, by the way, this is who we are, and this is what we're doing. Um, so everybody, welcome back to the Emerging Voices podcast. We've been on a somewhat of a long hiatus. It's getting busy over here in the Emerging Voices Fellowship. But today, I am talking to Rocio Carlos, who was a 2003 fellow with the wonderful Raina Grande, Nora Pierce. I want you to talk about your other fellows because I don't get to talk to them, even on the emails when I'm stalking them and trying to get them to answer me. But I'm going to read a short bio. Rocio Carlos attends from the land of the Chaparral. Born and raised in Los Angeles, she's widely acknowledged to have zero short-term memory, but knows the names of trees. Her other books, Beyond the Other House, uh-huh. include Attendance from the Operating System and A Universal History of Infamy, Those of This America from LACMA Golden Spike Press. She was selected as a 2003 Penn Emerging Voices Fellow. You gotta update your bio, get the center out. She <laughs> collaborates as a partner at Wirecutter Collective and is a teacher of the language arts. Her favorite trees are the Olmo, Elm, and also Sycamore. Aliso. 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 Yeah. What did I say wrong? Also. Oh. Um, so, oh yeah, I see it. Sorry, my phone is like this. Oh wow. Yeah. <laughs> my phone is like this because they can't afford a new phone. Right. Um, talk to me about the trees. So we've just gone around your property and it's amazing, like oasis in Los Angeles. I love how you say my property, like I own it. But well, you do. I, you, I planted you it and I here, and that's fine. Yeah. yeah. I, uh, I'm a steward of the of the trees. Yeah. Um. So. I'm only one generation away from the farm, and I think it's sort of, you know, somebody who grows things, their habit is to remark, to, like, observe and remark. When I was growing up, that's what we would do. Like, after, you know, dinner or before TV, we would just go outside and stand in the in the backyard, which is, like, the size of a postage stamp, and my parents would be like, the lemon's coming along, and look at my flowers. They're going to pop any day now, and so they would say things like that. Mm-hmm. And then when we would go for walks or go for drives, my parents would call trees by their name. They'd be like, oh, look at that bird inside that in that yucateco. Mm-hmm. Or they'd be like, da 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 in the date palm. Very specific. So I realized that trees weren't just trees. They were very specific. And as a poet, like, that's how I prefer to write, not bird, crow, mm-hmm. not tree, sycamore. Right. So that's, I got it from childhood. Um, and then here, uh, I just noticed the trees that are in my neighborhood, the jacaranda, some sycamore, some, boy, what is it called? The sh- uh, it's not a maple quite. Is it a London plain? I'd have to remember. Uh, I have no idea, so I can't yeah. fill in the gap. Yeah, so just, so it's always been my habit. And one of my favorite stories about my dad coming here was that he expected um, Alameda mm-hmm. to be like this boulevard lined with alamos, which are like a poplar or cottonwood, I think. Okay. Because that's what that name says. It's, mm-hmm. it, you know, this is the place of Alamos trees. Mm-hmm. And he got here and like it's a very industrial, yeah. very like right. urban 
street. And he was like, that's not what I expected at all. It's different than the name. And then I started realizing that a lot of the names for streets or neighborhoods in LA are the names of trees, but in Spanish. So people don't know that right. Los Robles means the oak trees, right. like the live oak or an encino or a fresno yeah. Yeah. or things like that. And yeah, I did not know that. So it's almost seen like, and that's only like the Spanish name. I don't even know the indigenous name for mm-hmm. a lot of those plants. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like this whole secret language of plants that people who arrived to LA don't even know. Right, right. You know, so I feel like I'm part of that secret language. I feel like your your poetry also is um, kind of like part of that language, part of that history. So much of what you write is a telling of a history. Talk about how you became a poet. I think I became a writer in earnest when I was like 12 years old. I just started like writing things down like in fourth or fifth grade. Did you grow up here in LA? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in like East and Southeast. Mm-hmm. Um, that's sort of how that happened. And then in sixth grade, I remember I, I was like, this is a poem. I write poems. I write poetry. Mm-hmm. So I, I told myself that. Uh, that's how that started. And then I, would, I wouldn't I would show it to people, maybe to impress my English teacher or right. like whatever. Yeah. And then in college, I started getting praised for it and I would read out loud and things like that. That's how that happened. What did you major in in college? Psychology. Okay. I was first generation to go to university, so my parents, I think that there was a disconnect of what I had learned from U.S. media and from my teachers, what college could be for and what my parents thought college was for. So, like, the four of us, my parents, me, and my 14-year-old sister, Mm -hmm. yeah, had a meeting about what my major was going to be. Oh, my God, I love that. And I was, I remember I was like, well, uh, I like English. I want to study English. And my dad would be like, but you already speak English. Right. Why would you study that in university? Right. And I didn't have an answer for him. And then he was like, you know, he was very serious, like, well, what kind of job can you get with that? And I didn't know. Right. Because, like, there's, I think they had an idea, as do a lot of first-generation parents of college students that it's a direct line from major to a slot in a job that's waiting for you when you get out and I think it's a total like nobody knows that it can change or that it's you can hate it I I figured well I can't analyze characters so I'll analyze people they're like characters in books by the time I was done I knew I wanted nothing to do with clinical settings I didn't want because I I knew that I would be part of these structures that I would be responsible for you know yes I might help people but I also understood that I might be part of the violences that happened to them and I I, I was naive I thought maybe teaching I wouldn't be part of violence yeah. but I am yeah, I was I yeah. stopped k-12 because I realized that it to cull the kind of results that taxpayers want for releasing tax dollars for education and mm-hmm. parents want and politicians want I had to be a kind of police you know mm-hmm. and and not only convince students that there was no other option but to want this thing that I said was valuable, yeah. but I had to start believing it. And I noticed how teachers around me would like wring their hand, hands or judge kids who were making kid choices. And like they were going to be garbage. They were going to end up in the sewer. This, they're the, re- the reason society sucks because there's people like them. And I was like, no, mm. I don't want to look disappointingly at a, the, a bright girl who was also going to be a parent soon. I don't want to think that a kid who had to go away and, and be in jail, couldn't still be a valuable person, but that's how like life or death yeah. it was in schools where I worked. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I didn't want to do that anymore. And now I'm part of a different kind of violence. I teach college classes, right. so, which is like, you know, yeah. I didn't even think it was ethical to tell students to go to, to apply for college because I'm saddled with like these insane, insane debts, debt. yeah. you know? And, yeah. Do you think the value of, because for me, when I went to school, my none of I was the first kid to go to college. 
And it was just like my parents just were uneducated. So it was the same thing where it was like you go to college, get a job. And it's like a direct path into a job. And I just was like lost in a way where like similar to you. I'm like, I loved English. I love telling stories. But like, what is the job in that? And it was like, I couldn't conceive of like the answer to that question because my parents couldn't conceive of the answer to that question. So I think a lot of us were just, I think those of us who were first generation to go to school and to not study something that led to a career right position like a yeah. specific position yeah. that we're still figuring it out or maybe you went to school and there was a position but then it sort of that field may have vanished or changed radically right. so i feel like whatever story we we learned about working for a company for home however many decades and retiring that that would be a satisfying or real for anyone right right especially now I feel like you and I are similar in age so we're that weird transition generation where it was like our parents worked at the same job like basically lived and died at that one job well I mean my parents had different you know jobs like my mom when she was a teenager she was a maid in Beverly Hills Mm -hmm. and then she was a seamstress in a garment factory downtown for a long time and then she worked retail at a fabric store Mm -hmm. and I think she was like well I'm doing these things so that you don't have to do these things so you can have that one position forever right right yeah you know it turned out not to be real or you know if I had just put my head down and worked I could have probably been like a middle or high school English teacher and had a pension and had benefits and things like that I wanted too much they didn't realize that by raising me to be bright enough to to do more that I would want different things yeah yeah they were not prepared for me to want different things and the things I was able to achieve right do you think that part of the artist's experience is that you know that that we do like have these metamorphoses I can't even say the word metamorphies is that a good plural I don't know know. um like we we can only last like every three to five years like we have to have this thing like we shed our skins like do you think that's an artist thing do you feel that way I don't know I, I guess I don't know because it turns out that like every three to five years I had to make a different choice I had to quit right. this job and do this part-time or I had to you know go to grad school or I had to do something radical mm-hmm. but I also think that that's sort of just part of the late stage capitalism we grew up in where there's no stability right and so you keep having to make changes because life you age into like whatever years like you have different economic needs you have different debts you have different um health needs and so you move yeah and then maybe that's how actually our parents and grandparents lived and we're just doing that again it's like a return yeah interesting talk to me about how you came to emerging voices it was one of those moments i i was um finishing up my psychology degree Mm -hmm. and jervy trevelon i think was one of my creative writing teachers i was just like gonna take all the electives i could and he told me he's like what are you gonna do I'm like I don't know I think I'm gonna try teaching and he said you should do this Mm -hmm. and I did and it it really was path changing for me okay 2003 that's way before my time I didn't start at Penn until 2015 I was a fellow in 2012 but like what was the process like did you find were you finding your own mentor Um, I asked so I you know I'm from LA and I was writing at the time you know one of these hybrid texts of poetry that could really be a narrative Mm-hmm. And I asked for Marisela Norte. Okay. Because I knew she was a poet from LA. And I want, because, you know, you're like, oh, who could I ask for? Maybe I could ask for, you know, yeah. the big person yeah. or yeah, whoever. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I was like, but what are the chances? They're in another part of the country or they're very busy. This seems accessible and this seems right. And it would help me sort of latch onto my own artistic community. Like, right. as I'm a grown up now, I can be part of it, you know? Right. And I think she'd done it before and she said yes and it was wonderful. And I still talked to her. I was just, I just saw her on Saturday. Amazing. 
So what about your other cohort members? I was part of, I like you mentioned, Nora Pierce, Reina Grande, and they were really great people to be in that circle with. And there was only a few poets, myself, Perini. Um, I feel like you had a lot of fellows your year. Yeah, it One, was a two, big group. Three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Yeah, is Perini in yep. there? And um, is Perini, it Keisha, Abarionex. Oh, Ibarionex Pereo, yeah. 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 Um, Colleen. Colleen. So the poets for me, Colleen and Perini. Adeline, Adelina. Adelina Anthony, yeah. And then Zynga. Yeah. Zynga lives in Paris now. Wow. Or fancy. lives in France. Sorry, yes. not Paris. Yeah. Because um, every time I send her an email, she's like, I can't come to these things. I don't live on the same continent as you. So right. that's that's the conversation that we are having. I think for, that we were a very large group, but we were on similar pages about needing a place for our voices and the representation. And I had known about, for example, Adelina Anthony for years before that as an undergrad, just paying attention to her performances and her her voice. And it was actually, I, I felt a little <laughs> starstruck Star by Shark. her. Yeah. Um, Jaina was sort of this dark horse. Like she was very quiet socially mm-hmm. since she would bring her little boy. Mm-hmm. But um, oh my God, I love that. later we ended up in a workshop outside of Evie together. And yeah. I just was like so spellbound by her work. Amazing. And I'll, I'll just always feel kind of close to greatness that I was yeah. in the cohort with her. Yeah. And Perini and Colleen, I just thought, had these really vibrant, really haunted voices. Yeah. Which is what I like about poetry, is to be haunted. Do you think because of the nature of Emerging Voices and its mission statement of, of, you know, amplifying underrepresented, marginalized voices, do you think that we're all kind of a little haunted? Like the people that have come through the program? Well, sure. When I mean, when you talk about survival of, like, genocide and erasure of all kinds or systemic violences, I think that's what it is. And in some places, we have names for it. There are different names. Like, you could call it the blues, mm-hmm. or you could call it el olvido, or nostalgia, or you could call it han. Um, and it's just sort of, like, this longing and sorrow that gets passed down. Epigenetics is this field where they're exploring what that looks like in an organism. Right. But I think for the person who writes it down, the way we've always thought of it is like to be haunted. Yeah, I think about I think about that too. There's like there's a Canadian band that I'm like totally obsessed with, and they have a song, and like lyric is I've always been dark with light somewhere in the distance, and I feel like that's just my that melancholia is like my yeah is like my regular setting. Yeah. Did you uh, ever did you listen to that little viral video? The little girl who who wrote a song called Dinosaur in love no yeah and I think I posted that dinosaurs in love is my general outlook because it's very sweet but it's very dark (laughs) um I think she says dinosaurs having a party dinosaurs in love and then you know the dad's trying to coach her and what else they say thank you they like snacks or something (laughs) like that a big bang came and they died and like it's like dinosaurs in love. Yeah. Dinosaurs didn't say goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> it's oh just my like the god. Most goth thing. I ever. love that. That's amazing. Okay, so talk about your LA literary community and like this life that you've made as a poet, as um, a creative person, even not yeah. even just a poet. It's, so you came out of Emerging Voices. Yeah. And I spent a couple of years finishing that project, and it became, it's, it surprised me, it became a novel, okay, a young adult novel, mm-hmm. and I got some mentorship from some other writers in the community um, who are established, and I got an agent, and then the thing that happens happened to me. My person who was editing, who was the editor of my project, mm-hmm. moved on, right. and then my work just kind of stalled out. Stalled out. Mm-hmm. 
And I'm actually glad that happened because I feel like I outgrew that project and I still think that I had a really good idea and maybe I'll bring it back in some other format. Okay. At the time I felt defeated because I think also I didn't know, I was making it up, how do you be a writer what is success supposed to look like? And I had like these fictional models of that, which I didn't know weren't real because I didn't know a lot of. So what are they? What were they? And how have they adjusted? Well, first of all. Because I don't know either. Right. But yeah. I think as a poet, I have totally different expectations. Right. right? But yes. I had done a fiction book and I was like, oh, okay. I right. wrote a fiction. I'm yeah. going to get an editor. And yeah. then they're going to call me in for a meeting. And then they're going to give me an advance. And then it's, I'm going to do a book tour. You know, But like, that's what happens. And then it's going to be a TV show. <laughs> <laughs> well, we do live in LA. So that's like, I feel like that's our go-to all the time. Right. So that's what I thought would happen. And then it just sort of, that was it. And I mourned it a little bit. And then I was like, well, back to work. Okay. To be a poet. I said, enough of this. <laughs> yeah. So did you, you didn't think of like taking it to a different agent or trying to, to I don't know, sell it in some other way? No. Yeah. Because I think I had tried, I did try okay. that. I kept fixing it and it just, nothing happened. So I was like, you know, that's, I can do other things. Right. So, and I was, I think that was when I decided, I started writing some other projects and that's when I was like, oh, so this, I'll just go to grad school. Okay. Again, I didn't know. I thought I'll go to grad school. I'll get this cool mentorship. I'll have time to write and a deadline. And then I'll have a master's degree and I'll get a teaching job. Yeah, right. Easy peasy. Yeah, right. Not knowing and nobody told me that those jobs are impossible. Like full time, nobody gets a full time job with an MFA except for me now after 10 years. Right. Um, and even when you do, say you're teaching three or four courses, that's still not a living wage. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. you're, you still can't. Mm-hmm. pay Los Angeles rent mm-hmm. a car note if you have one mm-hmm. or a $700 a month school debt payment like you can't live like that mm-hmm. I didn't know mm-hmm. I thought it would just you know I did the things I was good where's yeah. you know yeah. where's, the where's other, my reward yeah where's yeah. the other piece of mm-hmm. that, that you know so I think part of it is that because of like systemic violence is like debt and no room for you at the I end. I was going to say like lack of resources. Lack of resources. Yeah. Like those things never come to us. And, and, you know, people just keep saying, well, go to more school, get more degrees. You'll be more prepared. You'll be better than the other candidate. But prepared for something right. that's not what there. What am I preparing for? Right. Yeah. So, um, and I did come from to get me to a place where I even would go to college at all my parents seemed like education was the only thing that mattered and the most important thing and you had to do it all the time and so like I kind of was like addicted to school too yeah yeah and so that's I went got a master's degree while I was at school I was doing more projects I was doing more people in in creative writing yep I have an MFA in creative writing did you go to Otis I I did go to Otis okay yeah and so after that I kept um up with some of my with some of my peers and we would meet up once a week and give each other prompts and just write together and we decided to make tiny little published chapbooks and things like that but how for did the you most... pause here how do you make a chapbook where does that so come from so I, I say this like it was a part of my family but it kind of was I was punk rock as okay. a teenager you and were. an adult oh well, yeah. I am I guess yeah. like that's like <laughs> yeah, it what, doesn't go I, away that it's I like consider, in your blood right it, that I am in any big institution and I'm like like you know that's sort of part mm-hmm. of that is still there so I was used to zine culture okay. like these handmade um, pamphlets publications that were either stitched together with thread or stapled together and outside of big publishing it was just mm-hmm. something you reproduce and hand it out to whoever you tar- your target audience was and so like n- using that knowledge just collecting work putting it together 
and just handing them out or selling them or whatever. So that's how we made little chapbooks. And then so that practice stayed. One of my peers from Otis, Rachel McLeod Kaminer, we ended up writing a book together. But every year we try to put out a chapbook called Wire Cutter uh, by our little tiny imprint, um, Wire Cutter Collective. And so that's sort of like outside of these big machines that we don't always have access to. Right. You know, or, yeah. or emerging writers don't always have access to those things as much as people try to prepare us. Um, because it's moving all the time. It's shifting totally. all the time. Mm-hmm. What else? Oh, yeah, I went to grad school, got out, was making small things. But also I think I was exhausted. Myself, personally, I was exhausted. So I wasn't really going out and participating. Mm-hmm. I think that there's no one way to participate. And I think hibernation and sort of like this up and down and up and down, that, that's, sort of, that's sort of how I be a poet. Mm-hmm. I think either people think that you're like writing in a basement by candlelight all the time. Or you're just always no out in the street. in California. <laughs> <laughs> there's not. There's parking garages. Oh my god, that's hilarious. Yeah. Blood. Yeah, I love by candlelight. That's hilarious. Right, yeah. but like they have this idea mm-hmm. that like you're a recluse all the time, and right. sometimes you are, but sometimes you want to be in the street, and yeah. sometimes you have to be. In well, the you street. have to be in the street yeah. in order to have any kind of career. Yeah. Yeah. And and you know, so I think that that happened. It coincided. It's the stars aligned. And sort of when I was ready to reemerge, um, AWP happened in LA. And one of the cool parts about AWP is even if you can't get in the door because you, you couldn't pay the 400 bucks or right, whatever and it is, nobody sponsored bucks. you yeah. or whatever, all these offsite events pop up. Mm-hmm. Every community that's hosting it goes to the bar, the library, the bookstore. Mm-hmm. I read in an alley. Yeah. you know and people yeah. invite each other and so sort of that's where you're like oh my gosh we all came up for air yeah and let me look at you let me i had never met you but we grew up in the same town how yeah. is that possible so yeah. that's one of the really cool things about awp being in la where like i was like yeah we have community and we all we all are surviving and this is where we come to take attendance of each other and be counted like yeah. okay you're still standing or like i you know yeah i made a new friend interesting um, that you say attendance well i'm obsessed with yeah <laughs> taking attendance yeah. Because that was the title of the book that you did with Rachel, yeah. correct? Um, Why that term? Why that word? Well, it sort of came out of the observation of like the things that are growing outside. Mm-hmm. And I, because I had been a teacher in the classroom and you would you know, scroll down the names and be like, so-and-so, so-and-so. And when I go outside, I'm like, and I literally in my mind, I'm like, okay, Rosemary, you need trimming. Or like, come on, little nasturtium, you could do it. Yeah, yeah. Or I'm like, hold on, baby elm, the rain is going to come. I know the rain is going to come. Like, you know, yeah. so I'm always like talking to the plants and calling them my name. Naming so, things. Yeah, yeah, so I call it taking a tent and seeing who's, who's still standing yeah. after the yeah. thing. So, so yeah, so AWP happened. And then that, sa- that next year, I think, was when 9490 came back. Mm-hmm. And what is that 9490 is an event that so far has happened twice. And the partners at Writ Large Press, Peter Woods, Judith Alden Choi, Chiwon Choi, and Jessica Ceballos, mm-hmm. Um, put together the second one. The first one, I think, I, I'm not sure who all was involved, but the first one they did all at Union Station, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so it was... It's 90 events in 90 days. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Such an AA term, which always cracked me up about it because Chuan is so hilarious. Um, but it's like you go to 90 meetings in 90 days. Chuan is obviously not on the AA train. Um, so that always cracked me up that that's what it was called. Mm-hmm. Well, so then there was always something to do or somewhere to be. 
and it felt so urgent also mm-hmm. you know it was 2016 mm-hmm. it was the year of the election we were all just so afraid of what was going to happen mm-hmm. prince died david bowie died um all these young men brutalized and murdered by the police yeah. like like if there was any time to be in the street yeah. that was the time yeah and it was a kind of way to like to grieve and be joyful and have rage together yeah you know, um, F. Douglas Brown started the Sandra Bland Requiem yeah. series. Like mm-hmm. there was just so much urgency to do that, and there was so many available places to to start participating. And and if before anything ever seemed like a scene, which is like a double Dutch rope, you have to like, where do I get in there? Yeah, right. This was. It always felt like there was a way in. You could quietly come in, observe, and quietly leave if that was your way, or you could sign up for stuff. It was very democratic. That's crazy that 90, 90 by 90 was 2016. Because I remember going, because my mentor was Jillian Lauren, and she read for one of the events. And I remember going to Union Station and just feeling like I, I was still kind of on the outskirts of the whole thing. But I also felt like I liked to just kind of slide in and slide out. I didn't, I'm, it's hard for me to have all those conversations, those like social conversations. Do you yeah. ever get just like like overloaded with the, the with connection? I guess sometimes again it's like that thing where again sometimes you have to hibernate you can't i joke with rachel about the ditch remember when we were kids in the 80s or whatever you would leave the house for eight hours and your mom would just trust that you would come home alive because nobody had a phone yeah and so the thing that would you would get in trouble for is like i thought you were in a ditch yeah i thought you were in a ditch somewhere yeah. yeah But now the ditch is here. You know, like yeah. I say to my friend, like, oh my gosh, I haven't heard from you for days. I thought you were in a ditch. And, and she was like, I was. It was just in my oh, mind. I, like I was under my weighted blanket. Yeah. I could not people, yeah. could not person as a verb. Yeah. So that's the new ditch for us. I love that. That's amazing. <laughs> so like sometimes I'm in the ditch. Yeah. Oh my God. Okay. So I mean, AWP call, 90 yeah. by 90. I forgot. So we're just going on like how you made your career. So what happened? You came to the yellow house and how did we get to the other house? Like Uh, how do we get to this So, you know, one of the things right after grad school that was important to me was to keep sharing work with peers. And that happened a lot with the people who I went to, who also went to Otis, even if we didn't go the same year. Um, Throw out some names so I can tag them on this podcast. Um, Amy Horacio, Mm -hmm. author of Quench. Um, Rachel McLeod Kaminer, author of As in the Dark Descend. I hadn't met you won yet Mm -hmm. which is crazy because we're both from LA yeah I didn't go to any of the ghost maker stuff it wasn't until we met at a party at Rachel's house okay and then we sat at a table next to each other at the zine fest that year yeah and then I guess the rest is history yeah you know we met our cat Joey Pickles yeah (laughs) Joey Pickles I'm so sad if I don't get to see him Yeah. Because I feel like I like Joey Pickles is the most famous cat ever, and I was so excited to come over here. Like I was meeting a celebrity, and that's the one cat that's like hiding from me today. Well, he's in he's in the ditch. Yeah, <laughs> Joey Pickles in the ditch. I totally understand. It's been a rough couple weeks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, then we started sort of like a colleague's correspondence, and he was showing me some notes for the Yellow House, mm-hmm. and then I started writing, you know, little helpful notes. Yeah, and then I actually started writing them in poem form yeah right yeah and then everything everything sneaks in there when you're writing a poem yeah you think you're going to write to this thing and then it becomes about the thing that your work ends up being about a lot yeah (laughs) and so then I made a like a short uh, like a sequential poem Uh and that got published in Cream City Review I believe and then Janice Lee Mm -hmm. from the Civil Coping Mechanisms Mm -hmm. asked that was a book 
And I said, yeah. Right, yeah. And right. I made sure to give her that book. What did, what did Chuan say, like, when he saw, like, the first, when you made that kind of transition in those emails to, from notes to poetry? Was he, he like, stopped. this is amazing? No, he well, he's, he, I think he saw what I was doing. Yeah. And then he's like, oh. And then we probably just cried about it. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Like, yeah. what a testament to his story to, you know, lead you to your story. Yeah, I think that's that's what it is where you start sort of seeing, like, you can't know the other person's mind. Right. But then you're like, oh, I have, like, you. this is a book about being haunted. I am also haunted, but in similar ways or in different ways. Like, mm-hmm. where's, who's my little ghost? Who's my, where's my other path? Where's, what is the other languages that are hiding in there? Or how did I get language? And what is a house? And what's a home? Right. And, What's the wilderness? What are we trying to... I want to say a word in Spanish, but it doesn't make any sense in English. Because develop doesn't cut it. Okay. Fincar. 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 Una finca. The way my parents used it was to sort of make a home in the wilderness. Like where they're almost like, you know, in a hundred years of solitude, that ill-fated family. I don't know where even they came from. But they hacked their way through this jungle to found Macondo, that right. enchanted village. Mm-hmm. But the jungle closed up around them and nobody could ever leave again. Mm-hmm. Right? Except Ursula, mm-hmm. the matriarch. She's the mm-hmm. one who found a way out. But then she came back. She could have just escaped. Yeah. But I feel that that's sort of like how memory is or my memory. And my memories aren't even all my memories or the memories of my parents that sort of happen to live as stories mm-hmm. in, my, in my mind. They're in the wilderness. They're like in this little tiny village in the wilderness that got closed in on. Do you feel like you've kind of created that, like we're sitting in this like amazing house and you've created this kind of like community and like this place in the forest? Like when yeah. I first got here, we went around the yard and you pointed out all the plants to me. So it's it, it feels very much like this. I think so. And I think that's because also I have a very, I guess I have an idea of being in control of, like if I can control any space, let it be my home. Mm-hmm. And so let it be surrounded by a wall of trees that I am cultivating Mm -hmm. and let my guardians who are these little beasts you're meeting today Mm -hmm. let them be part of it and let them also be little warrior souls that like announce who is coming who is arriving right and and they get to say who is allowed yeah i love it so so what do you think like what does it mean to be a successful writer you use the air quotes well if we're not defining success through capitalism i think what these machines of publicity like the Oprah Book Club, like mm-hmm. success means getting on that book list, mm-hmm. right? Success means so many copies. Success means not having another job. Success right. means that there are multi-platform opportunities for your story. It can be um, adapted to a screenplay or, um, and then that can yield other products like scented candles or right. sassy t-shirts right, right. or you know tours to italy or, yeah or like teaching in italy at some right. like crazy astronomically expensive yeah creative writing workshop yeah. yeah so i think that's what people have thought and continue to think is success yeah I'm a poet, so I don't really have expectations of that. My job is to keep making work and hopefully make community and make space for people. Yeah. Literally, if I have a little bit of room, I have to scoot over on the bench so that someone else can join on. Right. 
because there's no reward in gatekeeping, at least for me. So success for me would be to create a community that people can enter and, and foster the next generations of, of poets from L.A. Mm-hmm. I love my town. Mm-hmm. I love my town so much. What do, you, what do you think the literary community in How do you think the literary community in L.A. is different from the literary community in New York? I don't know. Yeah. I don't. I have never been a guest in New York. Okay. I'm going to be in April. I'm going to be at the Nita's um, Sunday Salon series. Okay. So I, I, I've never been their guest before, so I don't know what it looks like on the ground. I think people have an idea of creative communities in New York, and part of it is because it allows, it's sort of like a self-perpetuating myth. I think it serves some people to have right. that idea. It's sort of the same way people think of L.A. as Hollywood, which has never been the experience of anyone I grew up right, with. Right, right, yeah. But I think part of it is that, quote-unquote, air quotes, Hollywood, mm-hmm. that's a self-perpetuating myth that it, some people in that enjoy and it serves them to keep perpetuating that mm-hmm. myth, right? So they can mm-hmm. keep their hierarchies and abuses in place. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that maybe some folks in New York have a kind of scene and they want the idea of that scene to live on, even if that's changed. When I think about the New York poetry scene, I want to see working class people. I want to see people of color. I want to see people who we don't think of as, as the poets of New York right? or like the cultural elite of New York. I think like part of the reason that New York is is like more of a scene or easier to navigate because it's literally easier to navigate. Like there's a subway system and like things are close and you can walk and like do you don't do you see that as a challenge? Because I see it as a challenge in LA. Like I live in Long Beach now and I work right. in Beverly Hills and like oh I have a full time job and like there's so much transit time that I feel like that right. that blocks me from community and face to face. Well, I think the blessing of LA is that there's no one literary community it's and there shouldn't be right where would it be centralized who would have access to it yeah I don't know it makes sense that like at least four or five different neighborhoods in Long Beach alone would foster their own community Mm -hmm. right or Mm -hmm. the valley or Alhambra SGV or Mm -hmm. Northeast versus Sela right so there's there has to be all these little different pockets and then sometimes we can all come together under an umbrella idea but for the most part it's okay to invest in your local community right and create bridges and stuff across freeways yeah what do you wish you knew as a poet starting out even a person starting out like just like what are the like what are like three things that you wish that you knew I wish I guess I wish I knew that poets have all kinds of jobs I think as a very young child, you know, in school, yeah. I thought that that's what they did. They were just poets all the time. All the time. Yeah. Like Emily Dickinson, Robert Frost, like whoever I read in school. Right. That was just what they did. Right. And sometimes they were just bad with money, like Edgar right. Allan Poe. <laughs> right. Even like Gwendolyn Brooks, it doesn't say, oh, so-and-so is also a professor or right. so-and-so was also a postal worker. worker. Yeah. Right. I think that's what I wish I knew where I, I had. I, I have feelings about people being encouraged to monetize the thing that they're really good at or the thing that helps them be a person. Yeah. Right. And so to monetize it, sometimes you have to go to school to professionalize it. Yeah. And that may not yield any results or it may change the thing you're trying to make. Right. Right. But if, if you know, if, some, if I had thought, well, it's okay to do whatever I do and then also do this. And yeah. It may have, I may have had a lot of peace of mind about it and just been okay with whatever. 
Well, I think too, it's like so much what I've learned from like trying to finish this book is like so much of it is process and like you hear that, but you don't understand because you're trying to get to like an end goal because Mm -hmm. it is monetized and it's like, oh, I need to have this product so I can sell it. Yeah. But if that's all you're thinking about, like you're going to be miserable all the time because so much of it is just the process. Right. And I think also, sorry, it's trash day. It's fine. It's trash day. We we call it uh, monster day because the cats are like, what is that? What is happening? Yeah, I think I would have, I think also if I had learned earlier that having a published product doesn't, isn't the only thing that makes you an actual writer, Mm -hmm. that you could be a writer and little things can be published or your practice can be in community, like performance instead of like where the end product Mm -hmm. being the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Nguyen has this one article, this essay that they wrote uh, in praise of doubt and uselessness. Mm And it was right after the sympathizers got the Pulitzer. And in it, I'm paraphrasing, he's like, when you see me, you see three books that were published in three years, right? Mm-hmm. That's, and, but you don't see the 20 years of invisibility, working in the darkness, working either un- undercompensated or, or unrecognized mm-hmm. with nothing. Mm-hmm. Just this thing that you had to do. Right. There's this myth of being an overnight success. Right. Yeah. Right. And I, and potentially, if if again, if the publicity machine gets behind you, right, or right. if you have a ghostwriter right. or something like that, then that that can happen. But for very few people, and also, I'm sure that stuff won't stand the test of time in our culture. Okay, right? It'll be very timely. That's why it's got a lot of money behind it. And right. like, oh, this is a story need, people need right now. Right. And then it'll sort of float away into yeah. into time yeah. because it's not well also now like we're so inundated with content it's like you can't hold people's attention right what advice do you have for beginner poets poets in general like what is important uh i would say to read a lot i know that sounds very like school teachery but you might find that you have something in common with, with some somebody who's doing that and a lot of contemporary poets are on the internet follow them on their platform see what kind of whole person they are and be careful with making heroes out of regular people Mm -hmm. because then maybe it turns out that they weren't what you thought they were i mean these are that's a very real statement for our times so you know see them as people and follow their work that's one piece of advice it doesn't work for everybody but that's one thing the other if you can person in the world you don't have to do it all the time 100 percent. but like if if Parts of the year, you're in the ditch. And parts of the year, you can go out and, you know, like ants after the rain, like everybody comes out and just take attendance of each other, take care of each other. Like, okay, let's see who's still standing, who's still making work, who do we need to check on, whose series is going, can we start a series? Where can you see each other? And then also, where can you make room for each other? And and no hoarding. If you find out about something cool, open it up to other people. You don't do yourself any favors trying to keep something for yourself. Yeah. You should share the mic. You should pass the mic. You should be someone who makes space. That's how I feel about poetry because I think Chiwan said in an interview once that people are fighting. Ah, yes, I do. Uh, fighting for a slice of zero pie. Yeah. I think he wrote that once about the yeah. clay review of books. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. At um, least for poetry. I don't know about because there yeah. is money to be made in fiction. But Yeah, but like to me, it's like you don't know. Like I, Like if you go into it thinking like I'm doing this to make money, it's like you're limiting your creative impulse too because you're constantly just thinking about the reader that's true you know and then it's like well who's gonna like this and like is the market gonna like this you know when I was in EV I was asked 
like how are we gonna how are you gonna sell this like this is not commercial and it just froze me because I was like I don't know what that means yet like I was just still too new right and I was like well of course I want commercial like doesn't that what everyone wants but like being a freelance writer now too it's like I don't want to be a writer full-time it's exhausting because you're constantly trying to like yeah. fabricate things out of like you're pulling words out of the air and trying to make a picture and it's like so exhausting yeah talk about your full-time job um after adjuncting for 10 years mm-hmm. i was hired this just very recently by art center college of design who i adjunct for almost 10 years um they're having a creative writing minor in their undergraduate program um and i teach classes there that i hope are a little different than some of the other courses they have and so i think they found me to be valuable person to have on their faculty okay I don't know what else to say about that that's yeah I I got like at 44 years old I got a full-time job which is nice yeah um it's not tenured it's a private school so there's no such thing as tenure yeah um but it is full-time you know and it's as permanent as anything could be right which is to say who knows who knows yeah yeah (laughs) yeah so I get to teach um poetry workshop and um some literary survey courses that I get to make up like speculative or protagonist driven or whatever um queer voices across literary genres voices of immigrants and first generation writers things like that things that i think are not expected and certainly by the institution or the student but the institution thinks that it's valuable that i'm offering those things and i think that they're necessary do you ever just feel like we were talking about this before like just do you ever feel exhausted by like just the constant struggle and like yes so then what do you do like how do you take care of yourself i don't always succeed but it really helps to be into plants and it really helps to literally put my hands in the dirt and it's nice to have pets to be accountable to Mm -hmm. you know you got to get out of bed for somebody sometimes yeah they want you to follow them around the yard, and so I go outside and I be with them. If I can't be away from my home, then I'm at least actively engaged with my plants and animals. But yeah, I'm I get tired of trying to achieve. I think part of it is that I have to work really hard to unlearn the things that I was taught I wanted, should want, right, and feelings of failure or disappointment that I don't have all those things ticked off any list, right. So I think that's emotional work that's really hard sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, so I that's how I take care of myself is to be with my plants and my pets. Um, sometimes I like I really like going for walks. So if I can be somewhere, walk with a friend, even mm-hmm. if we don't talk, just like walking together and mm-hmm. like pointing things out, mm-hmm. literally pointing at things like telephone pole with a crow on it or right. My grandma always used to point out hawks. If I see one, I'll just scream it out. Like it doesn't yeah, even yeah, matter yeah, who's yeah. there. And I was on the way to work like a few few weeks ago, and I was like sitting on the seven ten, surrounded by like semi tractors, and like want to like get out of my car and just walk away. You know that kind of impulse. And I looked over, and there was a hawk sitting on. Were you by the train yard in Commerce? Off of the I wasn't. To the I wasn't. I wasn't that far yet. I had just come like around the seven ten, going into the port of Los Angeles. So I was just <sighs> coming onto the 710, all the trucks going the other way. So I was, I was, yeah, it was close to that, but yeah. I wasn't in commerce yet. There's so many freeway hawks here. 
It was so cool. There's like at least three different ones on the 110. And I know that in commerce on, near the train yards uh-huh. by the Bandini Washington exit on the yes. 710, there's a couple hogs. Yes, yeah, so I was definitely close to that. Yeah. And but then, just to look over and see it, and he was just sitting there, and it was like, okay, I can do this. They're so regal. Yeah. Yeah. We have one that sometimes hangs out in the Hakarana in the corner, and like I've seen it just land on a pigeon and just do terrible things. Oh and, my God. Yeah. They're just, but the, when they when they glide into a tree, they don't make any noise. Yeah. They're like a shark. And yeah. They like just like it's amazing. It's amazing to see. That makes me happy to hear that you're this like connection to like the land because I feel that too. It's like if I don't give myself moments of joy where I'm noticing something where I'm like, oh my god, it's so beautiful today, or look at the sky, or look at the ocean, or like I'm on the at the ocean every day because I would lose my mind. My sister likes to remark, "It's a beautiful day." Like she just likes to like notice the weather and yeah. let everybody know. Yeah. Um, Anna likes to go to the ocean. Yeah. So she likes to be by the sea. Yeah. So I think that I hate the way that connection to the land has sort of been hijacked by sort of like a new agey wellness TM right. kind of um, outlook. Feels very Gwyneth Paltrow y. Yeah. Very, you know, and yeah. then like, you know, some of these like people just using sage bundles and things like that. You know what I mean? In mm-hmm. different ways. But there really is something about just. Sort of plugging back into that without mm-hmm. trying to make an Instagram thing about it. Right. You know, it's just... Yeah. Yeah. And I think part of it is, again, it's like we're learning the failures of, of the myth of progress, right? That four or five generations ago, we had to get out of the field and get into the city. Yeah. And then we had to get out of the chapter, um, factory and into the shop. Yeah. And we had to get out of the shop and into the office. Yeah. And right now we're stuck in the office. Yeah. Yeah, we are. You know, my parents, <laughs> they like not knowing anything about like indoor work Mm -hmm. that wasn't like it was either the field or the factory Mm -hmm. i remember my dad was like oh so-and-so works at a bank and uh, and later i'm like you know dad you don't need to to go to university to go to to work at the bank he thought bank tellers had to have a a degree right you know because they were always so clean and tidy and wore like little sweater sets yeah so (laughs) he wanted like and they wanted me to have any kind of job where i was sitting in front of a desk you know, and that was see, like it seemed having important, made it. Yeah. but they had zero idea of mm-hmm. like, and I still am always explaining shit to them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, that's not how that works. Mm-hmm. But it just seems like a step up for them. Right. You know, something yeah. that I should want. Yeah. But you're, but you are doing that. Like mm-hmm. you, you, you have achieved that thing. Do you yeah. feel that you've achieved that thing or do you still it's have It's still that? very new. Like yeah. I'm still very new in my full-time job yeah. and already I'm working on ways to like chip away at like some of the things that are entrenched in that institution yeah. in any institution. Yeah, totally. You know, even just like, for example, I work at a higher education institution and just like many schools, we have either an officer or a department or an office called DEI, Department of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. And, inclusion. and the thing is that by the time your institution, your company, your organization has adopted diversity, equity, and inclusion, it's, it's actually really super watered down. Yeah, yeah, it's like old language. It's been corporatized and co-opted and just like you need to actually just talk about dismantling white supremacy in your Mm -hmm. curriculum Mm -hmm. and like i schools aren't ready yeah schools are not ready my last place one of the places i taught at before literally the same week they had a symposium on racism and diversity that they also had like a thanksgiving dinner for international students right so Mm -hmm. what my one of my big things is like international students have received enough of a western education to make themselves attractive to a western institution right Mm -hmm. so if they learned art history they learned western european male 
masters mm -hmm. of arts, mm -hmm. whatever. Mm -hmm. And so they have their, they have those biases. They come here and they don't expect black and brown people necessarily mm -hmm. if they're mm -hmm. not black or brown themselves. Right. Um, and we, I, you know, have to educate them because through no intention, they're repeating these things which are ingrained right. in Western cultures. Yeah. And so, you know, the school's thinking, oh, we're going to acclimate our international guest students into American culture. And let's do that by teaching them about one of the worst things that ever happened. Right. And like, oh, see, this is an American tradition. Yeah. Why would you do that to yeah. start? And even then, like, we have this idea of... Our idea of progress is like, well, that sucks, but if that didn't happen, we wouldn't be who we are today, yeah. which is what in, like entire communities sort of internalize that, but also individuals. Like I've heard people ask like Drew Barrymore, like, hey, all this terrible stuff happened to you. Do you wish that you could go back in and do it? And, you know, survivors will often say like, well, it sucks, but if it didn't happen, I wouldn't be the person yeah. I am today. Yeah. Like, can it be okay for us to be like, that never should have happened? Yeah. Maybe we'll be, we would have been something different, yeah. but we'll never know. Yeah. Cause we, we could have been something even more amazing. Yeah. yeah. We'll never know. Instead of like having to believe that you needed those violences to, to come out with your scars and all. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think there's also this narrative of like no regrets. Like if you, there's something wrong with having regrets or like wishing things were different. Well, yeah, you go can't harder, change, go home. Yeah, you can't change it. So like don't, you know, don't dwell on those things. I hear that a lot. Spilt milk. I hear that a lot from I, writing memoir. That's, yeah. It's like, I like to live in the present. I don't think about the past. I'm like, well, I, I write about the past, so I, I do both things. I, Can't I don't we do both things? That's true. I think that they say that, but then they probably do dwell on it because, like, you're a person, not a robot. Like, yeah, it's You insane. can't just erase a memory. And, you know, it may be manifesting in different ways in your life and your practice and your work, but it's, it's going to be there. I don't think anything. We're haunted. It yeah. doesn't go away. But I also like being haunted. Yeah. It's just part of my... Okay, so tell me... Tell us how to make a zine. Okay, so um, so decide what you want the zine to be about and who you want to look at it. So let's say that you want to make a zine about your favorite pancake recipes, like mm. a breakfast zine. Amazing. Right? So you collect the recipes that you want and either you write down who wrote them or you give people a link to follow to be able to trace it. Or if you want to... If it's behind a paywall and you want people to have it for free, don't tell them and just give it to people for free. Okay. <laughs> well, you just decide what it is and who it's for. And then you decide on the format. Do I want it to be folded? Do I want it to be stapled? Do I want it to be stitched with thread? And the size. What kind of paper do I want to use? Do I want to use colored paper? Do I want to use cardstock? Do I want to use existing paper and just print on the other side of it? And then you do it at your job for free. <laughs> <laughs> and then like on a weekend with a friend you just you know fold them or staple them or make them nicely and then you find a place to distribute them either you can leave them next to other publications in some spots or you can ask your local bookstore or shopkeeper like hey can i leave these on consignment um or you can mail them to friends unexpectedly or you can go to zine fest and sell your stuff next to other people's or you can hand them out at shows these underground publications have a really rich history where there was, they were either forbidden or it was secret knowledge that helped people get by. Like green books were a real thing. Like black people trying yeah. to navigate the South, it was literally a matter of life, life and death. death. Yeah. So they would make these for each other and distribute them to each other. Mm -hmm. um, Margaret Sanger, too, like mm -hmm. her stuff, it was considered pornography. She got arrested, but she needed women to know how they could avoid pregnancy. Yeah. So she like made a bunch of little pamphlets and gave them out to people, yeah. you know, on the DL. Yeah. And 
and sometimes you get your hands on it. So it could be about your favorite bands and shows, or it could be really political stuff, a manifesto. Yeah. Or it could be about unicorns and poetry. Right. So there's nothing. There's no secret to it. It's so interesting because Damien is one of the fellows for 2020, and he wants to do a chapbook with his part black project where mm-hmm. he has his photo- photography, and then he also has, like, essays from people. And he's like, can you direct me to someone that, like, knows how to do this? And I'm like, I feel like... We do know how to do it. There, we just have to yeah, do it. Yeah, there are a lot of resources. Mm. And and here's the thing about poetry also and like starting out as a poet, mm-hmm. advice that I would give, even though sometimes you feel like you need to go away and self-preserve and hibernate and be in the ditch of your mind, it really is necessary to become part of a community because you're even if, if you make your work on your own, when you come out, you expect them to receive it or support it and just give them the basic respect of participating or being allies to them. So... If someone who's never made a zine before wants to make a zine out of nowhere, well, educate yourself. What are zines coming out of the place that you live that exists? Who are zine makers that you admire or want to respect? Because you're standing on your shoulders when you make your zine. Mm -hmm. You're standing on their shoulders when you make your zine. Right. Go to Zine Fest. See what's on the internet. Luckily, uh, for the past few years, I volunteered with this... um, girls rock camp in southeast LA called Mm -hmm. Chicas Roqueras and we always have zine workshop so because if the girls want to make their zines and there's no one who's listening to them nobody who's telling their stories they can tell each other their stories they don't need any big machine to do it right so I think it's it's really just out of if you're already outside of of the frame of the camera yeah then that's where you need to get your skills too you know yeah. Um, also, like, if that person's really interested, I could. Sh- uh, I'll show you a zine that um, the artist Ellen Nakagawa made when he was trying to go through the Dominguez Hills archives of Japanese Americans in the mid-century. Okay. And it has photographs and anecdotes and yeah. sketches. And- okay. I think that having FaceTime is so important. Why do you think Emerging Voices is valuable? Has been valuable? Continues to be valuable? Or not? Well, because especially in L.A., since everybody's in their little pockets, you know, surrounded by freeways or their commute or whatever, this is a place where you meet people from other parts of the city. Mm-hmm. If you grew up in a neighborhood where you went to the school that was down the block and you went to this job that, and you were in your freeway mm-hmm. and commute for like two hours a day, yeah. this gets you in people's radar of, mm-hmm. people of different parts of the neighborhood and you can become future collaborators. You mm-hmm. can start a reading series together. You can start a micropress. Mm-hmm. It's potential accomplices and allies mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and sometimes you don't have maybe if you're outside of academia or anything like that you don't know any other writers mm-hmm. and here at least you mm-hmm. have a group of other people that you're going through it together with and potentially if you only hang out with certain genre or category or style like here's another kind of input and always the mentorship like if you really are just grasping at straws that yeah that somebody who knows more or, or can give you ideas or can guide you or has had that experience already could tell you something Tell me your, give me five collections that you love. Well, I love uh, The Tradition, Jericho Brown. Mm-hmm. I love The Yellow House, Tiwan Choi. Mm-hmm. I love, I'm trying, I have so many. Wait, only five? I love so well, much. As Sharif. many as you can think of. So Mas Sharif, Look, um, Leilani, Long Soldier, Whereas, and it, Tommy Pico, the, um, is it IRL? Oh, boy. Franny Choi, Soft Science, Dennis Smith, Don't Call Us Dead, uh, Calling a Wolf a Wolf. <laughs> That's good. That's eight. Okay. Yeah. If you see Rocio out, you, she can give you some other reading recommendations. So many. What else? We're, it's been an hour. I told you it was going to be 45 minutes. I totally lied. What else What else do you want to say? Like, we didn't talk about the whole American Dirt thing. I think, like, I just feel like we've, that's all we've 
all exhaustively been talking about for like a month. But do you want to talk about it? It's, I stopped putting things online. Yeah. Because it's difficult to have like conversations that were nuanced because at the same time that you are angry about yeah. these systemic erasures, violences being overlooked, you're also grieving some of us because you had this figure on a pedestal. And it doesn't mean that you're throwing away their past actions which benefit all of us and it doesn't mean you won't continue to personally enjoy their work but I think there is something to be said for being able to name inconsistencies Mm -hmm. you know and it doesn't mean that the person is a garbage human being it just means like this is true and this is also true and I'm also having very personal feelings about this and I'm also angry that this is resulting in these other things. I will say that I think we need to take a stand against some of the death threats that the critics of this work are receiving mm-hmm. and understand that it's a power imbalance. It's not neutral to say, well, this book tour is canceled because we're worried about the safety versus critics receiving death threats who mm-hmm. already have survived you know, numerous violences. Mm-hmm. You know, at, like which side of that are we trying to to stand with like it's easy to be like no censorship everybody everybody has free speech yeah but if one person is protected by legacies and um huge corporations and actually the system in general the system in general and somebody else is you know a working writer who already has survived countless violences like that's you know which side of that are are people going to be on yeah yeah i have a lot of feelings all at once but i found that people are not willing to hear nuanced takes i think they want one thing to be triumphant and satisfying and that's not how it is for most of us who grew up with these icons and who live some of these stories you know Mm -hmm. yeah it's it's not as easy as censorship or being nice or it's none of those things or you know can't a person make one mistake it's it's not just one thing okay do you want to stop there yeah, because I don't have a prepared statement, so I, yeah. I'm just rambling. <laughs> and also, I feel like the prepared statements generally don't kind of get to the heart of things anyway. No. Yeah. Yeah, because we've all learned that corporate speak, that mm-hmm. sort of like, I call it like nonprofit memo speak. Totally. I know it well. Yeah, it's a violent language. Thank you, darling. This was amazing. I'm in love with your house. Um, I'm in love with your plants. I really hope I get to meet Joy Pickles before I leave. We'll do one more lap. We'll do one more lap. Um, Do you have anything coming up? Any readings? Yes, I'm going to be featured as one of the Drunken Masters of um, Writ Large slash The Accomplices series here in L.A. It's going to be on Wednesday, February 26th at General Lee's in Chinatown. Amazing. And I will be with, I believe, Bridget Bianca and Tiwan Choi. All right, cool. Well, we'll hopefully we'll see you at Drunken Masters. And if you need information, I'll be sure to share that on the Facebook, EV Facebook pages, EV Twitter. Thanks again. We'll see you. PEN America champions the freedom to write and believes that freedom of expression and literature are inseparable. Visit pen.org to learn more about what we do. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Join us. Be a part of the larger conversation. Support for EV comes from sources both big and small. Serious financial support comes from organizations like the Amazon Literary Partnership, California Arts Council, New Balloon and Catapult, Los Angeles County Arts Commission, the Ovation Foundation, Pasadena Literary Alliance, the Rosenthal Family Foundation, and UCLA Extension Writers Program. And let's not forget individuals like Jamie and David Wolf. We appreciate you. 
To the Emerging Voices themselves, this podcast is in support of everything you do and everything you've accomplished. Congratulations. We celebrate you. Thanks to 2012 EV Johnny Alfie for giving us our theme song, Linen, from his band, Tony and Johnny. And to the members of the Los Angeles literary community who have been showing up for us for more than 20 years, donating their time as mentors, committee members, author evening hosts, and masterclass instructors, I have leaned on each and every one of you for advice, and I appreciate you. You've been there to answer my questions, those of the fellows, as well as the questions of prospective applicants. You've written letters of recommendation, introductions, outreach essays, and blog posts. You've encouraged EVs to read at your events and said yes when we've asked you to read at ours. And to Dave Thomas, everything we know about public speaking, we learned from you. This is all just to say, thanks LA, sincerely.